Welcome to Bethesda Broadcast, the podcast of Bethesda Church in Huron, South Dakota. Today, we are getting back to our series called Managing God's Resources. Today, Pastor Roy will be asking the question, what happens in a grace-filled church? We encourage you to open up your Bibles and follow along with Pastor Roy. I'm excited about our topic today, what happens in a grace-filled church. Then I ask my question, what constitutes a grace-filled church? How does a grace-filled church happen? I think we have to go back to the home and say, what makes a grace-filled home? And then I think we've got to go even a step further back and say, what makes a great grace-filled heart? It comes back to that. It comes back to us as individuals and when we corporately come together, what God has done in our lives and how we respond to what he's done in our lives determine the amount of grace that we're going to have in our life. And I think we're going to look at a story today of a church that was truly a grace-filled church. Now, when I say that, it's not perfect. There's no perfect church, no perfect people. But in the process of God growing them, their response to the grace of God was overwhelming. And I trust as we look at the scripture today and we see this example in the pages of scripture that we will become that kind of New Testament church that is thrilled to be a channel of grace through which God can flow to this community in a way that maybe we haven't seen in a while. And that's my desire as we look at this. And so I want you to turn your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 8. I can't imagine somebody growing up in a home and saying, you know, I wish I would have been in a home that had less grace. I wish I had parents that expressed less grace to me. I wish I would have been in school and had teachers that showed less grace. I remember uh, in, in uh, college, I had two professors uh, for Greek at two different times. One never skipped a quiz. I mean, that semester, we had 40 quizzes in Greek. I mean, it was one or two per class period. And I was like, man, this is demanding. It was, it was intense. And it really kept you on your toes. And we had another professor that every once in a while, he'd say, how would you like to skip the quiz today and half the hands went up he goes okay he goes I think we're going to go ahead and and give you some slack some grace (laughs) and boy did we ever appreciate that but we really needed both the other teacher was disciplined he wanted us to learn the language and he would sometimes say how many of you would like to skip the quiz the one that gave 40 and we would hold our hands up and he'd say okay why don't you go ahead and get out a half sheet of paper and let's get the quiz out of the way (laughs) and uh, he never skipped a quiz And so I was glad for both because one was kind of teaching us discipline and really wanting us to learn. The other one was teaching us something about grace and uh, giving us a a little bit of a break. In 2 Corinthians 8, um, I want to give a little bit of background, uh, but let's go ahead and read down through the first few verses because I think it's important to understand the background uh, of these churches. He says, beginning in verse 1, And now, brothers, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. Out of the most severe trial, their overflowing joy 
and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. For I testify that they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability. Entirely on their own, they urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the saints. And they did not do as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then to us in keeping with God's will. So we urged Titus, since he had earlier made a beginning, to bring also to completion this act of grace on your part. But just as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in complete earnestness and in your love for us, see that you also excel in this grace of giving. I am not commanding you, but I want to test the sincerity of your love by comparing it with the earnestness of others. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. And here is my advice about what is best for you in this matter. Last year, you were the first not only to give, but also to have the desire to do so. Now finish the work so that your eager willingness to do it may be matched by your completion of it according to your means. For if the willingness is there, the gift is acceptable according to what one has, not according to what he does not have. And so we really want to look at uh, three things uh, this morning. And I want us to look at this uh, map, first of all, so you can kind of see, and hopefully it's large enough that you can kind of see what, uh, where places are on here. Um, here is uh, Troas, Neapolis, Philippi, Berea, Achaia is down here. This is Macedonia. He talks about the churches here being in Macedonia. Notice he says, the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. So what churches was he focusing on? Whoops. Let me go back here. Um, let me hit this thing again. Okay, so uh, he's talking about Philippi, Thessalonica, Berea. These kind of churches that are up in Macedonia are the churches that Paul had in mind. Uh, also, if we go to this uh, next map, you'll see also in this particular map, he throws in Corinth, so we can see where Corinth is down here in Achaia. All right, if we go back into Acts chapter 16, and Acts chapter 16 tells us how the gospel got to Macedonia. I think it's important because Macedonia was an unreached people, as it were. Uh, Gentiles that were there, and the gospel came to the Gentiles through the Apostle Paul. Uh, Macedonia today would be modern-day Europe. So in Acts chapter 16, beginning in verse 9, here's what happened. It says, A vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there, urging him and saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go on into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. So setting sail from Troas, where you can see where Troas is, uh, here in the map, Troas here, sailing from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace, which is not in there, but it's on the way to Philippi. And the following day, setting sail, uh, the following day to Neapolis, 
which is up in here. We saw it in the previous map. And from there to Philippi, it was about 100 miles by boat to go from Troas to Neapolis. And then from Neapolis to Philippi was an additional 10 miles uh, further inland. It says from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. We remained in this city some days. And even the fact that he tells us it was a Roman colony tells us something about the history of Macedonia. They were under Roman domination and oppression. The Romans ruled with an iron fist. And so because of that, they faced a lot of persecution and trials. So we want to look at three things today uh, in this passage. First is Paul's purpose. Why did he put this in here? Why is he writing? What is he trying to accomplish through giving this message uh, to the Corinthians? Secondly is the Macedonians' practice. What did the Macedonians practice to show that they were grace-filled in what they were doing? And thirdly, the Corinthians' persistence that Paul was encouraging along the way. So first we see Paul's purpose. I think one of his big purposes was to inspire the Corinthian believers in giving. And so I think it's good to talk about positive things that are happening in churches. Whenever we're talking about a church that we see significant growth, where lives are being changed, the Word of God is having influence and impact in people's lives, I think it's a wonderful thing to look at those churches and say, what is God doing there? Um, I remember reading a couple books that have had a, a great impact on my life uh, by Pastor Jim Cimbala. Fresh Wind, Fresh Fire, that he came out with a number of years ago, and more recently, a book that he came out with in the last year or so called Storm. Both of those books focus on the idea of corporate prayer, God bringing people together to pray and to seek the face of God in a deep, earnest, pleading way for God to bring revival, for God to change lives and hearts. And I think his purpose in writing was not to brag about the size of his church or how many people are coming to prayer meeting, although he put that in there. I think his purpose in writing was to inspire other churches to get involved and engaged in corporate prayer. And so here, Paul is not trying to make the Corinthians jealous over putting this in here. He is trying to inspire them and encourage them to become the kind of givers that we see in the Macedonian churches because these churches were filled with the grace of God and the grace of God radically changed their giving. And I think Paul is trying to encourage them in this. One commentator said that this grace, God's grace, was the unconditional kindness lavishly displayed. So he was trying to inspire them. I think our church has been inspired by New Hope Bible Church in Chicago. We put on a super summer jam the last three years, but where did we get the idea? From New Hope Bible Church. We sent a group of about 40 people there who were engaged in a super summer jam and caught a vision for it, brought it back to Huron and to Bethesda Church, and we have carried that out. Why? Because they inspired us by what they were doing. And so that's why I think Paul has given this, to inspire us, not to stay where we are, but to move forward as a church, to become a grace-filled church. 
Do we have grace in our church? Absolutely. Do we have grace in our hearts? Absolutely. But do we need to grow in grace? Absolutely. We do. So here's what Paul says in uh, Hebrews 10 or in 10:24. I don't know if Paul wrote this or not. We don't know for sure who the author was. But he says, "Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works." That's what Paul was doing. He was considering, how can I stir up these believers in Corinth to get a vision? And sometimes the best way to get a vision is to have a real-life living illustration of somebody who has a life change. And we see the fire in them, and it puts fire in us. And that's what I think Paul was trying to do by doing this. So these churches, Philippi, Thessalonica, Berea, we're going to look at them a little bit. A grace-filled church recognizes God's grace. It recognizes it. He says, brothers, at the beginning, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. I can guarantee you the believers in Macedonia experienced the grace of God and they knew it. When you and I experience the grace of God and we know it, it does something to us. We can't stay the same. It moves us. To be what God wants us to be. And here's what moved them. 2 Corinthians 8 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. You see, the one thing the Macedonian churches understood was the grace of God had come to them. How? Through the Jews. Paul said, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to the Jew first, and then to the Gentile. And there were a lot of Gentile believers in Philippi, Thessalonica, and Berea, and their Jewish brothers and sisters brought the gospel to them, told them about the death of Jesus on the cross as payment for their sin, and by the grace of God they could be saved, and they embraced the gospel, their lives are transformed, and they are forever grateful to their Jewish brothers and sisters. Think about who brought the gospel to you. Who brought the gospel to me? And how I can rejoice and who taught me God's word and the many people that have invested in me because of the grace of God in their lives. And what did they want? They wanted that grace to be transferred from their heart to my heart so I would become a gracious believer in Jesus Christ. It came to these pagan Gentiles from the Jews who crossed racial and cultural boundaries to bring the gospel of grace to them. And they never forgot it. Well, let's go on and look at the Macedonians' practice. What was their practice? To share their resources with struggling believers. They wanted to share their resources with struggling believers. They recognized the sufficiency of God's grace in their lives. 2 Corinthians 9, 8, God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. We see this in living color with the Macedonian churches <laughs> where the grace of God was at work. They could not give enough. 
they could not give enough. Can you imagine somebody coming to the end of their life and saying, you know what, I wish I would have been a little less gracious in my life toward people. I wish I would have given a little bit less than I actually gave. I wish I would have not given as much energy and time and service to the Lord's work because I just, I just wish I wouldn't have done that. I can't imagine somebody doing that. But I think the Macedonian believers were at such a point that they wanted to give everything they possibly could to promote the gospel of Jesus Christ. It was a way of life for them. It was not a program. They did not have this capital funds campaign or this giving campaign. They simply gave from a grace-filled life. And Paul writes to these Corinthians because he had seen this embodied in the Macedonian believers. Now look down what he says in verse 2. Out of the most severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. Notice he says, out of the most severe trial. Here's what he's talking about. He's talking about people that were going through affliction. He's talking about people that were crushed, that were pressed, that were squeezed, that there was trouble and tribulation in their lives. And yet, instead of that hindering their giving, it actually promoted it. Um, The other one that caught me was a woman in travail. (laughs) I have seen a woman in travail at least twice. She's sitting on the front row. (laughs) delivering our children. And I remember the first time we went to the hospital. We went there, like, what time was it? Seven in the morning? And 22 hours later (laughs) of labor, we had a child. Man, that was tough. You say, what are you talking about? You were just sitting there. (laughs) Well, actually, I was doing more than sitting there. I had to eat a cheeseburger and some fries and... (laughs) It was hard. <laughs> I had to keep my strength up so I could cheer her on, you know? And so that's what I had to do. I just felt like it was somebody had to do I mean, she couldn't eat, so somebody had to do it. Um, but the travail that was there, the severe trial, the affliction and the crushing that was going on, They had not faced just one trial, but many trials. In fact, this word for severe is used in Acts 11.21, where it says there was a great number of people that believed. That word great is the same kind of word here, where it was severe, it was great, it was intense, it was huge. And it also means that it was much. The same kind of idea is used in John 15, 5, where it says, if a man remains in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit. They had much affliction, great, many trials, not just one. It was like they went from the frying pan to the furnace. Incredible. It means out of the ordinary in degree and magnitude. They had faced persecution and hardship. Let me give you an example in Scripture. The Thessalonian church is one of the churches in Macedonia, right? Here's what it says. Paul says, You became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in what? Much affliction, with the joy of the Holy Ghost, so that you became an example to what? All the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. And remember where Corinth was? It was in Achaia. You were an example to the Corinthians. Corinthians. 
You were an example to all the believers in Macedonia because of how you responded to affliction with grace. Wow. And then he goes on and he says in 2 Thessalonians, the second letter, therefore we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you are enduring. They weren't through them yet. And yet we see grace-filled believers who are giving of their resources to their struggling believers, fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. And here you have Gentiles giving to Jews. Do you remember they hated each other? God had so filled them with grace that the people they hated, they loved. The people they wouldn't have given a dime to, they're now giving everything they can possibly give them, including the shirt off their back. You talk about grace. Oh, what a picture of grace. In Philippi, Paul is in a, in a jail. And it says in Philippians 1, some were preaching Christ out of envy, rivalry, and selfish ambition to stir up trouble for Paul. And you remember when Paul went to Philippi, he met a, a, a seller of purple, Lydia who gave her life to Christ. She was from the city of Thyatira. In Thyatira, we read about a church in Thyatira in Revelation chapter 2. God had brought the gospel to them, and Lydia was one of the first converted. Paul also saw a Philippian jailer converted in Philippi. The grace of God was spreading in Europe as a result, not, in, not because of the absence of persecution, but in spite of it, God still allowed the gospel to spread. Paul travels from Thessalonica. He goes to Berea. When he goes to Berea and he begins to preach the gospel in Berea, the gospel of grace, here's what it says in Acts 17, 13. When the Jews in Thessalonica learned that Paul was preaching the word of God at Berea, they went there too, agitating the crowds and stirring them up. So we have to understand, even though we're people of grace, people are going to react to our grace and our message. They're not going to receive us with grace and open arms. It's a gospel that is a stumbling block to the Jews. It's a stumbling block to people. The cross is offensive to people. And yet Paul, in his grace, reaches out, and these churches are established, and believers are filled with grace, and the word of God is spreading and now these brothers and sisters in Jerusalem are struggling. They don't have money. They don't have resources. There's been a famine in the land. They have faced persecution. And they're at the end. They don't have ends meet. And these Macedonian believers hear about it. And not only did they open their hearts, but they opened their hands. They not just open their hearts, they open their wallets <laughs> to give what had been given to them they had brought the gospel to them and ministered to them now they're turning around and ministering back and notice what it says out of the most severe trial their overflowing joy and extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity have you ever seen a person in extreme poverty and have overflowing joy at the same time the two don't seem to go together, do they? But they did here. And when it talks about their extreme poverty, you know what he's saying? 
We'll get there in a minute. They rejoice in giving to God's work. We don't associate overflowing joy and extreme poverty as being together, but here we find a group of people or a church which has fallen on hard times to be experiencing such gladness of heart. Overflowing joy is a surplus. It's an abundance. It's an excess. Years ago, before I was in ministry, I worked in a bakery. And our bakery had a railroad that came right next to the bakery, and they would bring rail cars in full of flour, and those, those rail cars were full of flour, and they would actually take this, this big hose and hook it up to the rail car and, and hook it up to a, a silo. We had these huge silos that were actually full of flour. And they, it would pump a 1,000 pounds of flour a minute. It's incredible. And these big silos had these uh, big, like, gates at the bottom where you could take the gate off and actually climb inside and clean them out every once in a while. And somebody had that job. It was their responsibility to clean out the silos when they got empty and, and then they would refill it. The, the problem is you have to remember to tighten the gate. <laughs> and this guy forgot to tighten the gate. And guess what happened? In about 14 minutes, they realized it. <laughs> And there was 14,000 pounds of flour on the floor. <laughs> that room was overflowing with flour. There wasn't room to hold all that flour. That's the kind of joy that was spilling out of the Macedonian believers. In spite of their extreme poverty, this joy just absolutely bubbled out of them. They couldn't hold it inside. And that's how you know that grace is real when this joy just spontaneously comes out of someone. You know it's not fake. It's real. They had joy in the midst of their difficult trials. Some people wear their emotions on their sleeves. You know they're having a bad day. They want, they want you to see it on their face and in their demeanor. They want everyone to see it, hear about it, get sympathy for it. These people were not over their trials. They were still in the middle of them. They were passing through them. The severity of their trials tell us about the degree of difficulty that they had. They were under financial pressure. They were facing hardship. It was not a sunny day in the Macedonian households. They did not have extra cash laying around to give to God's work. It tells us that they had extreme poverty, and here's what it means, deep down, rock bottom. Deep down, rock bottom bottom. That's where they were. It actually means to be a beggar because they did not have what they needed. And yet, as beggars, they turned around and gave what they had. They were in a state of complete helplessness. They had insufficient possessions their poverty was as deep as their trials were piled high. In fact, uh, Livy, the Roman historian, tells us the Romans had lacerated the Macedonians. Had lacerated them. They had been through so much persecution. Their attitude in giving showed the godly attitude the Macedonian believers embraced. 
the grace of God was at work in their lives. They were not saying, woe is me, life is brutal, God's not fair, God's not good. No, they were rejoicing in the grace of God. And, and not only that, they were just about tripping over themselves to give. Here's an important principle, though, in giving. God is more concerned about our attitude in giving than he is the size of the gift. It's not the amount. It's the attitude with which we give. Um, here's another way of saying it. The attitude of the giver is more important than the amount of the gift. Because they did not have the means to give probably what they wanted to, but they gave what they had. <laughs> like the woman who put in the two mites. They gave what they had. They responded with liberality, rich generosity, single-mindedness or simplicity. They had a sincere heart to give. They gave as much as they were able. An open heart results in an open hand. Their action was full of integrity. That's what it means by sincerity. They had no pretense. It was no strings attached. It's not like, we'll give this to you and later you can give this back to us. No, there were no strings attached, no ulterior motive, simply the grace of God that they wanted to share. They were sacrificial in their giving. And even beyond their ability, that's sacrificial. Here's what sacrificial means according to Merriam-Webster. The act of giving up something that you want to keep, especially in order to get or do something else to help someone. You're giving up something that you could have gotten yourself, but you're sacrificing that to do this. And I think that's crucial They would rather go without rather than see their brothers and sisters lack what they need. Notice down in verse 4. They urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the saints. In other words, here's the deal. They were begging Paul to participate in the gift. I don't know about you, but I don't have many people come up and beg about taking an offering. <laughs> and not only begging about taking an offering, but let's take three or four or five or six offerings. Because we didn't give enough the first time. Let's just sing another verse and let's take up another offering and let's give again. Let's sing another verse and take up another offering when we want to give again. They wanted to give and give and give and give because they recognized what God had done in their lives. Wow. They urgently pleaded. You know how your kids go, you go into Walmart, Daddy, can I get this? Daddy, 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 I want this, I want this, I want this, I want. That's what they were doing, saying, we want to give, we want to give, we want to give. Please, 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 Paul. We want to give. What an attitude that they had. They surrendered their lives to God. 
Notice what it says in verse 5. They did not do as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then to us in keeping with God's will. They surrendered their lives to God. It says in Romans 15, 26, and 7, For Macedonia and Achaia, we saw those on the map, have been pleased to make some contribution for the poor among the saints at Jerusalem. For they were pleased to do it, and indeed they owe it to them. Look, for if the Gentiles have come to share in the spiritual blessings, they ought also to be of service to them in material blessings. They said, because you brought the gospel of grace to us, we just want to come back and help you. (laughs) We can't help but do that out of gratitude for what you've done in our lives. So Paul shares this story with them, gives them this visual illustration, this living color example of these churches. And now here's what he says I want you Corinthians to do. Be persistent in your giving. Don't stop short of what God wants you to do. Make sure you follow through and do what? Finish what you have started in the past. Because notice what he says here in verse uh, well, we finish in verse 5, so that neither do we go on beyond our limits by boasting of work done by others. Our hope is that as your faith continues to grow, our, oops, I'm sorry, I got it off on the wrong page. Right church, wrong pew. Verse 6, chapter 8, so we urge Titus, since he had earlier made a beginning, to bring also to completion to finish what you start, this act of grace on your part. But just as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in complete earnestness, and in your love for us, see that you also excel in this grace of giving that you complete it. Look down in verse 11. Now finish the work so that your eager willingness to do it may be matched by your completion of it according to your means. Don't stop short of excelling in the grace of giving. Yes, you have wonderful faith and you trust God and you believe God. Yes, you have great doctrine and good speech in your life and that's wonderful that you have all that. He's saying you have those things. You have faith, you have speech, you have knowledge about God, but don't stop short in the area of the grace of giving to God to spread the gospel of Jesus Christ. Unfinished business does not feel good. It's amazing how much a person can get accomplished the week before he goes on vacation. (laughs) Why? Because he doesn't want to leave with unfinished business. It'd be horrible to leave this earth with unfinished business that God wants to do in our lives. I want to close with this story. Chip Ingram, in his book, The Genius of Generosity, tells about a man named Tom Monaghan. Outwardly, he was as successful as a businessman could be. The innovative founder of Domino's Pizza grew up in poverty. 
But at the peak of his personal empire, he owned the largest pizza delivery chain in the world. He also owned the Detroit Tigers baseball team and plenty of expensive cars and collectibles. At one point, 54% of all pizzas delivered in the U.S. were delivered by his stores. He was at the top of his industry. But then he came into contact with a little tiny book by C.S. Lewis called Mere Christianity. One night he reads this book, Monaghan came across a passage about pride that hit him right between the eyes. He saw himself in Lewis's words and was suddenly aware that all his hard work was based not only on having more, but on having more than others. I was too obsessed with impressing people Sobered by the realization that he was the proudest person he knew and that pride was the basis for all other sins, he decided to rededicate his life to God. Monaghan decided to give up all his toys and took what he calls a millionaire's vow of poverty. He eventually sold Domino's Pizza and determined to devote the rest of his life to giving away what he had in order to help people know Christ. He knows he can't take his money with him, and he doesn't want to leave it just to others to decide how it is given away. He has taken care of the needs of his family, but the rest is being leveraged for eternity. He wants to die broke and has put himself in a position to do exactly that. My main goal, he said, is to help as many people as possible to get to heaven. Monaghan says, and I want my money to go where it does the most good and saves the most souls. He has helped found a university in Florida where he has pledged the majority of his remaining resources in addition to working full-time to raise money for its mission in an effort to build God's kingdom. Monaghan's sense of satisfaction and fulfillment is profound. He said, my life is so right for the way God made me. He says, I believe I'm doing exactly what God wants me to do, and I feel so privileged that he gave me the wisdom to see it. Let's stand for a word of prayer. I would ask you to bow your heads and close your eyes. Let me ask you a question. Does it burn in your heart just a little bit after you read about the Macedonian churches? I mean, to see our brothers and sisters in Christ to be under that kind of oppression, that kind of trial and affliction, that kind of poverty, and to give in spite of all that because of the grace of God. That's what I say happens in a grace-filled church. It's not a program. It's not a capital funds campaign. It's not the pastor twisting people's arms. It is merely us responding to the grace of God. Because though Jesus was rich, yet for our sakes he was made poor, that we through his poverty might become rich with what he's blessed us with. And if we could, I, I want God to make me more grace-filled. 
Not just in giving, but in everything. And I want to spur you on and inspire you and encourage you to become that grace-filled person that God wants you to be. The lives that can be touched because of grace is phenomenal. There are people in Huron who are lost, who need some grace-filled people to reach out to them. That's why we're going to have a friend Sunday in a few weeks. You don't have to wait till then to bring a friend, by the way. But I want to encourage you, you have an invitation in your bulletin to invite, not just someone, but invite two or three people to pray about it. Read the insert. There are people in Huron who are lost, who need the gospel of Jesus Christ. Maybe you're here this morning, you don't know Jesus as your personal Savior. My friend, Jesus, though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor. He became poor for you by hanging on a cross. He took the sin, the shame, the punishment, the condemnation that we deserved. He took it on his shoulders for you and for me that I could be forgiven of my sin and cleansed and be in a right relationship with God. If you are here this morning, my friend, and you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, I invite you to come and give your life to Jesus Christ. I'll be shaking hands at the door at the end of the service. If you have a spiritual need in your life, if you would like your life to be filled with the grace of God, the Bible says today is the day of salvation. Now is the accepted time. Would you give your life to Christ? If you have questions about how to do that, I'd be glad to pray with you and show you from God's Word how you can have a personal relationship with this living God. It's crucial. And may God help us to become a grace-filled church, to experience grace-filled homes. Husbands and wives who have the grace of God. Children who are experiencing the grace of God. That you would be a grace-filled person in your work, in the marketplace. That when somebody sees you, they say, you know, there's something different about that person. They operate, they march to the beat of a different drum. May that be true in our lives. We hope you've enjoyed today's message. If you would like to know more about Bethesda Church, you can check us out on the web by going to our website, which is BethesdaMB.org. That's Bethesda, M as in Mary, B as in boy, dot org. Or check us out on Facebook by searching for Bethesda Church of Huron. Have a blessed day.